Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of the Engendered Podcast, our guest is Melissa Falavino, author of her essay collection, Tomboy Land, a meditation on the influences of geography, desire, and identity on her journey as a queer woman and feminist. We speak with Melissa about how her childhood in Wisconsin shaped her views of her conceptions of sex, womanhood, and her own performance of femininity as an expression of power. Melissa also offers reflections on other markers of gender and identity, including religion, guns, borough identity, and their manifestations in culture, their intersections, and their contradictions. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Thank you for being part of our series on sex, womanhood, and femininity. I really enjoyed reading your book, and I loved the different themes that you explored in it, starting with the first essay, which is entitled The Finger of God. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Let's start with that, the role of religion in shaping your identity and your gender identity in particular. That essay, The Finger of God, um, you know, we start the book with that um, because it's kind of like an origin story in a way. I think of this story, this this mythology around um, this F5 tornado that destroyed a small town eight miles west of my hometown um, as this kind of origin story to my own upbringing and understanding of um, faith and myth. I grew up in a relatively religious town. You know, my parents weren't very religious, but um, we went to church and you know, both of my parents were Catholic and I was baptized Catholic. And in fine Midwestern tr- tradition, we um, converted to Lutheranism. And so church was a big part of my life. But then I um, I got involved in this youth group, which, you know, is, is a very kind of popular thing to do in a small town like mine and kind of got indoctrinated when I was um, an adolescent. And, you know, this sort of semi-evangelical Christian ideology became this like defining part of my life, even though I didn't, I wasn't convinced that I actually believed in it. You know, I think maybe for a time I I convinced myself that I did, but, you know, I was always skeptical and uncertain, um, but I really latched onto it as a, a sort of constant in my life, particularly as in adolescent, in adolescence, things started to get a little you know, rocky. And, um, and so the essay kind of deals with this tornado that destroyed a small town. And then the stories we tell around the tornado as it relates to God and faith and protection. You know, the story that I heard growing up was that God had protected our town while it had destroyed this other town. And so we were kind of saved, which, you know, didn't strike me until much later how you know, strange and problematic that narrative was, you know, why, why would this God, you know, destroy this town and save ours? What makes us worthy of saving while this town was not worthy of saving? And so I use that kind of um, as a way to dig into my loss of faith and loss of religion 
and the intersection of that loss with the understanding of my body as being, you know, this a girl's body and female body and its relation to power. And specifically start as I started to understand my lack of it, you know, as a growing up, I, I never thought of those things. I was a tomboy. I was, you know, running around with the boys, playing sports. You know, I, I thought of myself as one of the boys. And as I began to develop into a girl body, became started to become increasingly aware of what that meant and the implications and felt like I had less power in the world. Um, and so that it was really an exercise in, in faith and myth and power and destruction um, and control and our, our, our yearning, you know, um, to find control. Um, that's, that's interesting because in your essay, you talk about how the culture, um, you know, geographically in the Midwest and Wisconsin in particular, but also the religious, the cultural aspects of the religion discourage talking about problems, right? And part mm-hmm. of the role of faith is to not have to talk about problems. Right. Is to accept. And one of the consequences of that is, you know, inculcating this culture of silence, this kind of grin and bear it that we associate with religion, but also to, I think, the Midwest, right? That mm-hmm. yep pull yourself up by the bootstraps kind of mentality. And this yes. is, um, and then as a corollary, going back to gender, there's also in order to maintain that culture, it requires this strict adherence to traditional gender roles, that everybody has their place. So looking back on it now, how did that culture of silence and acceptance impact your own thought processes and ability to question how they were trying to impose gender on you? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it was sort of interesting in the process. I wrote a draft, you know, the, the first version of this essay was published a couple summers ago in Prairie Schooner. And then for the book, I expanded it and my what I did to expand it was last summer um, at the 35th anniversary of the tornado, I went back to Wisconsin and interviewed survivors of this storm. And, and one of the survivors is a woman whose young son died in the tornado. And she and I spoke in my hometown about this experience, you know, this, this experience of unimaginable loss and and what happened to her and her life in the wake of it. And, and, you know, she obviously had an incredibly hard time and drank heavily, which is, you know, kind of the way in this part of the world. And also had this experience of this town, which was supposed to be her community, not really supporting her. So there's this whole narrative that I saw when I was doing research. And I went to the name of the town's Barneveld, um, went to the Barneveld Public Library and was researching in all the archives and there's this narrative that kept emerging about this community coming together and how you know in the wake of devastation um, a community can you know resurrect a town and bring it back to life obviously it kept using all these like biblical references like rises from the ashes and so there was this narrative of com- the importance of community in strengthening and rebuilding 
And then I talked to this woman um, who did not have that experience, who lost her son and did not feel supported by the community. And as she spoke, I really, it really started to, I really started to understand this, like, or circle around this question of like, what happens when a woman, you know, kind of breaks through these traditional structures, you know, what she's supposed to be and how she's supposed to deal in the silence she's supposed to carry around, you know, the burden that she is supposed to carry alone, what happens when she starts wearing it aloud, grieving publicly. And the answer, it seemed, was that people kind of shunned her or, you know, were afraid of her or who knows what what she experienced in the 1980s, but it wasn't support. And it was in the wake of this horrible, unimaginable loss. And I realized as I talked to her that so much of this story had to do with that for me as well. You know, this feeling of loss and loss of control and loss of power and trying throughout the course of my life since then to reconcile being born into a female body, identifying, identifying, you know, predominantly as a woman or, you know, genderqueer some, somewhere in that murky space, feeling like that meant necessarily that I had less power and trying to regain some semblance of power within my body and re-inhabit my body as a, a place where I felt powerful. This goes back to one of the topics, uh, the themes rather, in our introduction, which is contradictions. Mm -hmm. That religion, you know, many people turn to religion because they want a community, they're it's responding to their need for a sense of belonging, and yet it's very conditional, that belonging, right? You have to fit into certain behaviors or thoughts or whatever it is, and if you don't, then you're... In, in the case of, I think, the mom, Sue, she was rejected or shunned. But in other communities, like the Orthodox community, you maybe not even can step in or they own your child and it's more mm -hmm. severe even, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so this, it's in a way, it's, it's, it's very similar to, she has a quote in the book that you share, we don't have time for the kind of trouble that dwells in the brain or heart. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's that kind of mentality that makes those kinds of communities, those cultures vulnerable to mm -hmm. manipulation, you know, mm -hmm. and that's why the opiate, you know, crisis has mm -hmm. devastated those communities because um, you write, you know, that the those that culture doesn't encourage talking about problems that people drink to death because of stress and grief, and they try to numb it away. And and similarly, if you're a victim of a predator or other kinds of violence, that's a common reaction as well to cope. Right. It just to me exposes the number one the hypocrisy of those kinds of cultures. And then number two, the duplicity, how it's so harmful, actually, to its stated purpose of bringing community, it actually is producing collective harm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so I'm wondering, like, at what point did you reach that level of awareness mm. <laughs> <laughs> around religion, etc.? Like, was this a, was there like peaks and troughs? Or was there one point where you're just like, this is it, I, I, I can't believe it? 
That's a really good question. You know, I think it was a kind of a, a process, but I, I think that, you know, when I left my hometown and went to college, I didn't go far. I went to the University of Wisconsin, which is 30 miles away. But I, you know, I'm a first generation college graduate. Um, and I think that I studied literature and, you know, I, my mind was just sort of opened up to to understandings, political, literary, cultural, that I didn't have a grasp on. Um, and, and feminism was one of them for sure. You know, the first woman, women's studies class I took in college was like, you know, my, my head exploded. And I just realized then in college, uh, I, you know, I didn't believe what I had been sort of, what I'd been taught and what I had been regurgitating for so long. And, you know, I think for a long time I felt tricked, felt manipulated. And, you know, I had this very visceral kind of anger um, toward what I had been roped into and promised by way of protection and community, particularly as I began to understand, like, you know, I, I don't think I was ever part of this community, you know. So I definitely had a bit of a reckoning when I was in college and then it was a slow sort of... Um, slowly sort of separated myself from that culture and it meant losing a lot of friends, you know? Um, and luckily, you know, some of the friends that I grew up with, I'm still, I still have a relationship with, but it, there were a lot of years in between that, you know, we didn't speak because we, we just had such different lives and some of them still identify as Christians and have this very sort of um, Christian identity and ideology. Although, Many of them are very liberal and very progressive and um, are activists. So it's cool to see, to look back and see like, oh, there are, you know, people who identify as Christians doing really good work and doing important work and actually living in a way that is more in line with what this whole ideology uh, says it is. <laughs> um, so there was a fissure, a fracture for sure. And then now, 20 years later, I feel like there's been a little bit more reconciling personally. But I think that the process of writing this book also really helped me identify, that essay in particular helped me identify this truth about my life, that religion had this, you know, had a, had a foothold and it had, it had its claws in me. And, um, and it took me a long time to extricate myself um, from what I had learned about what a woman should be, you know, and try to make sense of my own life and my own identity apart from that. Let's talk about your identity as a genderqueer woman. Mm -hmm. You talk about the fluidity of the role of words and cultural production in self-identity and your own journey to arriving at comfort with using certain words. So for you, like, what does womanhood mean? How does that relate to your life? It's a, it's a complicated and it's a complicated question and one that I'm I am grateful to be able to like interrogate and it's an ongoing question that I that I look at and face and not one that I think I have a discrete answer to but I guess I don't know you know um, is is the short answer um, but what I kind of was the work that I was doing in this the the near title essay tomboy. 
um, was trying to figure out how I feel about that word woman and womanhood and how I fit into the shape of it or don't. And if I don't, like where I don't fit into the shape of it, does that mean that I'm not a woman or that I can't fit at all into womanhood? Does feeling separate from a word and an, an identity and at once feeling like I'm part of it and it's part of me, is that reconcilable? So for a long time, I, you know, I was just like, none of these words fit. And I, and I don't, I, I really was frustrated with this feeling that I had to call myself one, one thing or another, even if it meant calling myself non-binary. And cause that was a word I kind of, you know, looked at and tried on and I like the idea of it. And I like, I like that it exists and I like that it has, you know, taken on a larger role. Um, but that also never quite seemed to fit, you know, so I, I vacillate between feeling very connected to the idea of womanhood and then feeling very disconnected from it. And there's, you know, this, I feel like my sort of coming to understand myself in terms of queerness and, and in particular gender queerness is coming to the realization that I can identify as gender queer and also identify as a woman, that those things are not um, irreconcilable. And for a long time, I think that I, I thought that. And, and part of it has to do with the fact that I am not a gender theorist and I have not, you know, I am, I don't have the kind of like deep education in terms of gender um, theory that a lot of my community and a lot of my friends do. And I have long felt like a total yokel when it comes to talking about gender. And I still do in a lot of ways. Like I don't feel qualified. I don't feel smart enough. I don't feel intellectual enough to inhabit those spaces. And so a lot of that essay was also about that, like, you know, class and how growing up in a working class place and a working class family feels like I felt for a long time precluded from that conversation because I didn't have access to the right words and the right language and the right texts and <laughs> still a question I'm asking every day, basically. <laughs> it sounds like, and also from the book, there was a lot of uh, weight that you were giving to the word womanhood in its connection to motherhood. Yeah. One aspect of womanhood and the expectations around having a heterosexual marriage, which also relates to religion, mm -hmm. and the, uh, the trajectory of being a mother at some point, and the value that we place on women who are not mothers. Mm -hmm. That brings me to this question around sex, because you have many stories in here around different parents, including one who's a very non-traditional couple, or no, sorry, it was a, it's a triad of parents, I believe. Yeah. And they had a son who they were trying to raise gender non-conforming. Mm -hmm. And I felt that that was interesting because to Devin mm -hmm. and her partners, a queer woman and a trans person who the latter two of whom were married, they wanted to they raise their son as gender neutral. And they didn't do so because I guess he, he, the son was maybe three or four. And Devin said that he was 
he wasn't cognitive enough to understand what it meant to to be raised gender neutral, to not have pronouns. Mm. And so I I thought that was very interesting because I myself um, am am new to sort of the gender debate, <laughs> the gender <laughs> conversation, and I'm it's trying vague. to understand, you know, what the different positions are, um, mm-hmm. and I don't feel that it's a black and white decision. And so I'm wondering with the example of Devin, how can one reconcile that a child is too young to be gender neutral, and yet at the same time, there are different groups of people who think that a child is old enough to be self-identified as potentially trans and and be mm-hmm. ready to make transitions. Like mm-hmm. those two seem contradictory to me. Mm. Yeah, and you know, this is something that I feel like I am not super equipped to speak to, you know, in any kind of like official way, you know, um, but it, it was a really enlightening conversation to talk with Devin. And, you know, I think that their decision as as a, triad, um, maybe, you know, my understanding had a little bit more to, less to do with their son's age and more to do with the fact that he was already coming from this very non-traditional um, family structure and that sort of defaulting to he, him, you know, boy was easier than trying to, you know, raise him with this kind of double whammy of non-traditional structure. So, you know, the son of three mothers, you know, polyamorous triad, triad, and then also to be using they, them pronouns and um, gender, you know, um, sort of in this genderless structure. And so while they kind of in the beginning thought that they would try it, they eventually came around to this place that they just said, you know, we'll, we'll let him decide, you know, a little bit later if if this fits. And in the meantime, we're going to be having conversations with him about gender and really be intentional about how we talk about gender and his parents' gender and the ways that, you know, fit or don't fit into various categories and allow him to sort of have all of the resources that, you know, so many kids don't have and that we certainly didn't have when we were growing up um, to make that decision for himself as he gets older. She has this great quote that's, uh, you know, this isn't verbatim, but like if he does decide eventually to transition or, you know, become or or that he identifies as uh, genderqueer, he'll be very, he'll be super well equipped for it, you know, in such a supportive and and non-traditional structure. My thought is, does gender and all these other categories that we've come up with, these constructs around sexual identity, et cetera, do they even have any meaning outside of patriarchy? Like, are these all responses to patriarchy? Like, even when you, when I asked you about the womanhood question, you were using phrases like fit in, like you're still defining it in response to how other people, how society has defined it. And so in my conversation with um, Lisa Selen Davis, right, but there's this phrase in her book around is tomboyhood a rejection of femininity? Mm. Mm-hmm. And femininity meaning a form of internalized sexism because mm. we mm-hmm. recognize that being treated or the state of womanhood is so dangerous, so unsafe that mm-hmm. 
we take on these tools to help keep us be safe. And so it keeps us from actually really exploring what is identity, what is authentic, you know, identity. Yeah, absolutely. I read about that a little bit in the in the essay Tomboy too, about how I recognize now, you know, from this vantage point that, you know, as a kid, when I kind of, you know, identified as a tomboy, I don't know if I identified as the right word, but I was what people called a tomboy and um, but really wanted to be a boy and felt angry that I was a girl. And, you know, I know now that so much of that had to do with identifying what society expected girls to be and feeling that like that was so directly at odds with how I inhabited my body and what I like to do and who I like to hang out with and the kind of life I wanted to lead. So there was definitely this sort of reactionary um, anger from an early age, you know, that I saw this in so many ways, you know, very indirect, but I saw it um, and, and, some, and sometimes very direct, but, you know, what was expected and, and sort of my, my life be- became, my, my living became a sort of resistance to that. And then, you know, there's this idea of tomboy taming that both Lisa and I talk about in our books and, you know, this expectation that tom- tomboyism is fine for children, but once girls hit adolescence, uh, they have to reject tomboyism, you know, in favor of the traditional sort of feminine roles and expression. And, and so what was interesting as I was writing this book is was coming to the realization that I had done that on my own. And I had kind of forgotten about that in my, in like the story that I tell of my life, you know, I have just always been this kind of androgynous tomboy, but that's not true at all. What's true is that I was an androgynous little tomboy. And then when I hit like 12, I really started to, you know, work on cramming my body into these confines that were expected of me. And even that, even the way that I say that and think about that now, like this like idea that I was like, oh, that's how I need to be. So I need to make my body like that. That's not true either. What's true is that like I had this internalized process by which I was like, I need to be pretty. I need to be attractive. I need to wear makeup. I need to wear skirts and heels. And and that internalization became feeling powerful and feeling sexy and feeling attractive and feeling like an object of desire, which I in- interpreted as being powerful. So I was at once making these decisions as an agent, but, but not because I was functioning within this system of patriarchy and especially growing up in a small town where, you know, popularity and it's all linked to, as girls to being attractive and being wanted and having boyfriends. And, and so it wasn't until I was working on this essay and I went home and I write this in that, in that piece and I was hanging out with some friends from high school and we were talking about like, you know, how people had changed and, and the paths we had all gone down. And my friend Sarah was like, well, you've changed the most from high school. And I was like, really? And she was like, yeah, you were so girly. And I was like, whoa, 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 what? Did you just say girly? Like, I've never been girly. And she was like, you were girly. You were like constantly spraying your hair at your locker and you were putting on makeup and you were boy crazy. And I was like reeling. And then at, 
you know, it didn't take me long, but then I was like, you're totally right. I totally was like, that was my existence, you know, throughout my early twenties. And it wasn't until, you know, really I had a bunch of traumatic experiences and then found my, found a new community um, in roller derby, which was made up predominantly of queer, you know, androgynous women and was like, okay, I found my people and I, you know, I started to inhabit my body in a way that felt right and real and authentic again. I love when you talk about roller derby as being the first time where you found a community of women who understood and you identified with Mm -hmm. and how you talked about how your body existed on an equal plane with the body it loves rather than to be in service to it. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of like metaphor for heterosexual sex that mm-hmm. some radical feminists have, have articulated is inherently vi- violative. Right, right. That in a way, like that power dynamic between a man and a woman with traditional genitals, <laughs> genitalia, you know, is going to be inherently reinforcing a power imbalance. And so that this, this notion that um, two bodies coming together equally in these... Um, same-sex relationships that you found um, was very interesting. And that speaks to a lot of the experiences you talked about, the traumatic experiences you talked about when you were younger um, that you were reacting to and, and how many of the reactions were, um, again, going back to sort of defining yourself as a response to trauma. Mm-hmm. And so have you now, you know, looking back, have you more insight into some of those conversations you were having with yourself and the labels and categories that you were either embracing or rejecting and separated it from the experience or from your actual, you know, gender authentic identity? Yeah, I think so. You know, I think, I think what's, what's happening, you know, again, it's a continual process is that I'm just, getting more and more comfortable with the discomfort of, you know, not having a label that fits, you know, and, and being okay saying, yes, I'm a woman and yes, I'm genderqueer. And, and I don't necessarily always know what that means and, and what that looks like. And it might change, you know, and, and sort of embracing fluidity. And that has been recent. And, and, you know, I think that there was a period where I was really grasping to try to hold on to this specific set of criteria or like, you know, identity descriptors that would help me belong, you know, or fit. And just really the more queer people I talk to and the more, you know, friends that I make who are just like, this is a, this is a lie that we've been told our whole lives that we, you know, we don't have to pay attention to and we can just be whatever the hell we are we are and you know it's a constant act of becoming and inhabiting and that's fine and that we don't you know we don't need these labels that were given to us you know within patriarchal patriarchal misogynistic systems so it's been a process and it's a continual process and but it's been relatively liberating (laughs) I want to touch upon some of the, I guess, activities that 
that you engaged in in the past and some reflections that you, you shared in your book about them. So one of them is around BDSM, bondage dominance, sadomasochism. And you said that in your exploration of it, it was potentially an effort to regain power and control, that it was a safe space. And then later on in that same essay, you talked about how you wanted to please a man that you loved. And a part of you thought that if you were dark enough or subversive enough and submissive enough, that if you were willing to do everything he wanted, then you could then capture you know, what it is that you wanted, his love, his, his approval, his attention. And so when I read that, I thought about this parallel conversation that feminists are having around prostitution Mm -hmm. and how there's this divide between people who are trying to um, reduce harm and prevent harm. And I'm on the prevent harm side. Yeah. And so those who want to legalize um, the purchase of prostitution are basically saying this is okay and this is necessary because it's going to happen anyway and maybe we can regulate it and it actually mm-hmm. helps empower the people who are being prostituted and then there's those who who believe that maybe more idealistically that we can prevent harm that we can actually create a world where women can aspire to have jobs that, that have pay equity, <laughs> that have security, health care, and child care, and that prostitution would not be a choice in that world. Mm-hmm. Because prostitution, yeah. in their view, is by definition exploitative of the right, body right. and of the mind. And so mm-hmm. it brought me to that question because I wonder how many people within the BDSM community shared your views and even have that insight or awareness like are they doing it because they're kind of to to basically stereotype heterosexual men like they're they're going to be who they are going to be men going to men and this is our (laughs) way of kind of staying valuable and valued and desired by them Mm. and Mm. even though it may not be something that we ourselves desire. And if we do, then at least we have control over it, which is a lot of what people in prostitution say, that we at least can create control, some measure of control, um, if this is going to happen anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm wondering what you think about those parallels. It's, it's endlessly interesting to me. And because, you know, in my own experience, there's so much contradiction. And first of all, I just want to say, like, you know, I know people in BDSM communities who are, who I see as total agents of their existence, and they are consenting adults who are doing, you know, what they actually desire um, in safe places. And, and that's, you know, without question, a, a thing that exists, you know, in my experience, I think it was more a thing that I told myself was true, when in reality, I was engaging in in this community and and partaking in in BDSM because my partner wanted to and and that has been a really difficult thing to admit to myself and also like to interrogate the implications of that. I really conceived of myself as being an agent in that and and I think in some respects I was I was not taken advantage of. I don't see myself as being, you know, manipulated in any way. You know, it was just that I, I was functioning within this 
system and this understanding, you know, that again, just like when I was an adolescent and trying to get the attentions and affections and what I thought was love from older men, it was like, this is how, this is how I have been taught and this is how I have learned to obtain power. And obviously that is, you know, incredibly messed up, <laughs> but it's what girls learn. And, and what's, what has also been interesting is just to sort of understand that the, like the validity of my sexuality vis-a-vis like submissiveness is a real thing that I discovered in that community. Like, you know, I'm starting to understand myself as someone whose sexuality had this lean towards submissiveness, which went against everything that I thought I believed about myself and really wanted to be, again, this like I always envisioned myself as being dominant and powerful and and then sort of coming to this realization that as a sexual being with fantasies and a sexual life, I actually had these fantasies and desires of submission. And so reconciling being a sort of masculine leaning gender queer person who is also somewhat submissive um, sexually is like a weird space to, to inhabit and maybe not for other people, but has been really kind of challenging, but also really kind of enlightening for me. And I think I, I don't think that I would have made that um, discovery about myself without being engaged in the BDSM community. So there are parts of that experience that I, that I carry with me and that are still a part of my life. And then these other parts that I recognize now that were more aligned with just being this, you know, girl in her early 20s wanting to be game and wanting to be, uh, you know, edgy and experimental and also wanting to please this man who was my partner. And so it's been, it's a weird murky space. And that's that whole, the kind of the point of that essay was, to, to dig into that contradiction and try to make some sense of it and, and also to embrace the fact that we can be contradictory in our desires and our identities and that to be a feminist, that you can be a feminist and also be submissive, for example, or, you know, that you can be queer and also want to have sex with, you can be a queer woman and want to have sex with men. And like, those are hard contradictions they were hard for me to face. And so that was kind of the, the process of writing that essay helped me kind of uh, make sense of those. To your point around there being couples or you know relationships out there who are mutually consenting and engaging in you know BDSM activities, that also in many ways is still a response to our patriarchal norms, right? Around mm-hmm. violence um, mm-hmm. being an assertion of power and dominance. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it is a fantasy to imagine that it's not, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. And still, yeah, it's still exactly. a response to, you know, so again, it brings the question, like where the chicken and egg, like would that exist in a non-patriarchal right. world? Right. We even need to have these responses to reject or interrogate or question or right. when you talk about the body as being a weapon as being a tool um, for you, you chose, you actually, you chose multiple ways. You chose tomboyism, 
but you also reasserted your femininity at different points you mentioned in high school and also when you were playing softball. Mm-hmm. The taunts and ridicule of labeling you as a lesbian had you overcompensate, right? right. And so you, right. I, I loved when you said that, you know, you basically, either way, what both responses were, were reasserting your position as object. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And so I think this question of how can we envision women and gender as something outside of domination and violence and exploitation, to me, involves partly a political movement around like equal rights amendment, around getting protections against sex-based discrimination. Mm-hmm. And sex then needs to be identified as a marker for being treated differently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, in multiple settings. And, and so that then goes against a lot of what we were talking about in the queer community where we're trying to de-gender words mm-hmm. and we're trying to de-gender. And to me, feel, I feel like de-gendering is a post-sexist kind of activity, you mm-hmm. know, post-sexism a- activity. Like we need to be, we need to have the ERA first <laughs> and yeah. these protections before yeah. we can go there because otherwise we're diluting or erasing or hiding the ways in which sex is being used against women mm-hmm. to hurt us. And so going back to your journey of interrogating femininity, for many people, their response to asserting power is to self-police, self-gender police, and to mm-hmm. be overly gendered in their femininity mm-hmm. so that they could use their femininity and their body as a tool to gain power and access right. to be right. an object of desire. Right. And, you know, whether it's maintaining their youth or, you know, other kinds of things. And so I'm wondering if you can, you can talk about that a little bit in terms of as a political destination of gender equality. Mm. How do we get there in the midst of all these conversations Mm. that are making it really difficult for us to come together? Yeah, it's really hard. You know, I I was just having a conversation that was not not really about gender, but about, you know, the political like political divides in this country last night. And I found myself in this place where I I was thinking, you know, at first it felt very cynical, but then I kind of came around to, well, maybe this is not cynicism, it's just realism, that the fractures, the fracture and the fissure in our country is so deep that perhaps they're not reconcilable. And and that there are there's half of this country that, you know, doesn't believe that women should have equal rights and doesn't believe in queer people and don't think that black lives matter and that people of color are oppressed. And, and then there's the other half of the country that does believe in all of those things and does know that these are issues. And, and, you know, I, it, it's, it's always very frustrating to see those fractures within, you know, communities, you know, and I, and I go back to sort of conversations within the queer community that seem increasingly polarized. And I think so much of the, those conversations it's like we're trapped in a bubble. And what I see when I go outside of this bubble and go back home to Wisconsin, for instance, you know, or talk to family members who are conservative is like, we are fighting 
too similar of a battle to be fractured and the real enemy is out there. And like, those are the people that want us to be harmed. And, and so I don't know, I don't know. It's just, it's wildly frustrating to me when, you know, I see sort of fissures within the fissure and, and I just, I don't know if it's reconcilable or not, you know? Well, let me, let me um, posit this for you because I, as a advocate um, to end sexism and, and domestic violence, uh, and, and as a survivor, that you mentioned, you know, you have a whole essay exploring guns and gun ownership, right? Yeah. And you interview a lot of people. You're, you sh- you um, chronicle your own journey as a gun user and owner. Do you still own? No, no, no. no okay, I've never owned a just gun. user. No, no, no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> just, just, um, just a couple times. Okay. I, went, I, I shot a gun. I don't have. There are people in that essay, that family members and whatnot, who, who kind of put forth this dichotomy that there's honest and safe gun owners, and right. then there's criminals and mentally unstable. Right. And that right. even your friend, Nick, who's mm-hmm. uh, a female Jewish gun owner, mm-hmm. she said she would give up guns if, if it would end mass shootings. Yeah. Right. And so I, when it comes to guns and mass shootings, I don't see it as this dichotomy because criminals and mentally unstable people are not the ones who are engaging in mass shootings. Right. (laughs) Like they, they might be criminals in the sense that there's a (laughs) connection with regard to the, you know, largest connection of mass shooters is their domestic violence history. And so they may have been marginally criminals in the sense that there might have been orders of protection against them, but they don't normally, um, that one of the problems with domestic violence is that it's not taken seriously. And those perpetrators are not, and the crimes that they're committing, they're not viewed holistically, so they're not put in jail and placed there long enough to keep them from engaging in further harm against their partners or against other members of society. Mm-hmm. And so that's actually one of the, the ways that I think we can address mass shootings is to take domestic violence more seriously and sexism yeah. and misogyny more seriously. Because as you rightly stated, like there's so many people who have this men- mentality of hating women and then intersecting with rage, you know, leading to violence as their right. expression. But um, it's not this dichotomy. And so the people who are shooting can appear honest and safe because they're the same people who are engaging in murder-suicides who everybody says, oh, that was such a nice guy, couldn't believe that he did that, you know, killed himself and his family. And that's the problem. And so for me, of course, guns are just a tool, like in other parts of the world, they don't have guns, so they use acid in India, or they use knives in China. Right. But still, people are going to be harmed. It's just the scope. And so... I think that we need to address the mentality of sexism and misogyny and this, I mean, you refer to it as fear that Mm -hmm. men have that, you know, can also show up as rage, but it's not the emotion that comes first, it's the mindset, it's the thoughts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so if we don't address those thoughts, then it's always going to show up. And in a way, I think we need to get rid of all guns as a symbol of masculinity, as a symbol of masculine strength. 
as a symbol of masculine identity that people come together to reassert. And mm -hmm. we need to replace it with other symbols of masculinity that don't do harm. Yes. That's how I think we're going to be responding and lowering the incidence of, you know, gun violence. Yeah. Not yeah. because we're actually engaging in gun reform, but because <laughs> right. those, those uh, markers are going to be replaced and their mindsets are going to be hopefully transformed. So yeah. I would like to know what your thoughts are on that. Oh, no, I totally agree. I think, you know, absolutely. I, I feel like, you know, the problem of guns is, guns are a problem, but so much of the problem exists in, as you said, the mentality in violence, in the culture of violence that predominantly men are taught you know, from the time they are born and the misogyny that they are taught. And so, you know, in that essay, I talk about sort of, you know, the, the, the inception of the incel, you know, and this mentality that boys and men have that they should be able to possess women. And if they don't, then they can kill those women. And that's what happens. And um, I use this example of a case in Wisconsin where this guy, you know, asked out, worked at a grocery store and asked out a coworker. She said no. She rejected him. He went out that day, bought a gun at, you know, freaking Walmart or whatever in 15 minutes, went back to the grocery store, shot and killed her. And like that to me is the perfect representation of this problem. And yes, you know, I, I you know, Pretty, pretty firmly I'm in the camp of we should just take all the guns and throw them in a fire. But also I think that you're absolutely right that what also needs to be addressed is, is to somehow, you know, unlearn and to stop teaching um, by way of what we see on TV and what we see in movies and also what are, you know, the par what parents are teaching children and what they're showing their children and what they're um, exposing their children to by way of violence and until we can somehow you know dismantle that that me that mentality is always going to exist and it's terrifying it just seems like it's such a cultural truth that exists and i love the idea of having other symbols of masculinity you know i talk about the gun as this masculine symbol um in the book too and just like I think about this all the time, you know, as a, as a woman, you know, who looks masculine and kind of presents with a certain amount of masculinity, I think about masculinity all the time. Like, what is good masculinity and what could good masculinity look like and what could masculinity mean? And it's a, it's a warring thing that I think all the time, like, is there a good masculinity? I, you know, if I am, if I have mass, you know, if I'm a masculine person, what does that mean about me? What have I learned and how have I worked to unlearn violence in, in various forms? And it's a continual process that has been, you know, years of therapy and learning and reading and teaching myself about the systems of violence that we learn and trying to unlearn them. Yeah, I mean, I, I love that when it comes to masculinity and, and like associating positive behaviors and traits part of what some people feminists and you know other other um theorists have suggested is 
being more comfortable associating it with feminine traits, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. also just degendering every all these traits and then just making it human traits. You know, yeah. like why does being compassionate and nurturing have to be feminine? Right. Um, so that's the point where gen degendering can be helpful and seeing value in in someone who like listens. And even though there's a stereotype that men have that that they don't have conversations with their male friends. Right. Because and that's why they have female friends so they can have hopefully healthy relationships and yeah. someone to listen to and talk to. So why can't they do that with other men, you know, and destigmatize yeah. talking? But but I also love, you know, in your example when you talk about your spider plant, you know, this metaphor for growth and motherhood and and regeneration because I myself and there's also a movement, I don't know if you know, there's like a movement for plant parents. Hmm. There's someone called Plant Queen on Instagram who is just loves plants and, you know, the whole Instagram is about plants and other accounts are about black men, you know, being plant parents. Mm -hmm. and, and so being able to sort of disrupt these stereotypes and really focus on connecting with nature and other mm -hmm. life forces, whether it's animals or plants, right? Like yeah. being able to grow plants for me, that's been something that's been very healing. Mm -hmm. So I love that you are able to bring that into the conversation as well. Yeah, I love that. I, I will definitely look that up. I love this. I love that there's a movement to yes. do gender, <laughs> plant parenthood. It's great. We don't have to, you know, we can just be, we can all be plant parents. <laughs> it really is nourishing. <laughs> so we're at the point of our conversation where I ask every guest a series of questions I call the engendered questionnaire. Okay. And the first question is, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? Wow. Um, so much. <laughs> I think, you know, relating to what we were just talking about, I think one of the larger stakes is, is the perpetuation of violence and trying to reach toward a world where violence against women is not just de rigueur, is not, is not something that is a given, is not something that's even common, a world in which, you know, women are, feel safe walking home at night and uh, safe living in their bodies, whether they are femme presenting or not, you know, feel safe living. And I think that's, that's the goal. That's what's at stake. And that's also what, you know, we should all be working toward. What gives you hope? <laughs> this makes me sound old, but, you know, young people give me hope. I'm a, I'm a teacher. Um, I had a sort of career shift in this last year. I, I was an editor and now I'm a teacher and I teach writing and working with young people in particular. I work with many different populations and communities, but working with young people gives me so much hope. I leave every class that I teach just feeling so grateful for these, for these, for these people and these writers who are dealing with identity and race and gender and feminism and incarceration and, you know, the problems of our country and gun violence. And they're so smart and they're so compassionate and they have so much empathy and they want to do this work. And I think that they can, and I think they're going to be key in 
bridging some of these gaps and helping helping people understand one another better. And final question, what can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence and oppression? I think that we can start we can start teaching uh, children from the earliest age um, about the importance of gender equity and about vital importance of treating one another, you know, with respect and with care and with gentleness and with empathy and not with violence and, and really trying, you know, at home and in our schools. And I think, you know, it's really important to do this in schools, perpetuate this understanding of equity and the importance of defending that, you know, maybe especially with boys, making sure that we're raising boys to work toward equity and defend equity and, I don't know, just (laughs) make that a foundational principle of education. I think it starts at a really early age. It has to start at a really early age. So I guess more of that. Thank you so much, Melissa. I had a lot of fun talking to you and I wish you every success with this book. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a total joy. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.